Previously on Newsbreak, Lotus FM. Well, it's time where you get to do the talking. Good afternoon. Welcome to Newsbreak Talk. I'm Taresh Hari Prashad bringing you another informative conversation today. One where we're going to curate your opinions, your thoughts and definitely your perspective. So a very big day ahead. A lot lined up on the program and we're going to go through it as the hour takes us to the end. But uh, let's start straight away with uh, some very important top stories for the day before we take you into the crux of our conversation today. Um, and I just want to remind you about these very important issues because no doubt it has an impact on the world around you. And the one and the news of the day that uh, got everybody talking yesterday was President, former President Jacob Zuma, because Chairperson of the Commission on State Capture, Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo, has authorized that summons be issued for former President Jacob Zuma to appear before the Commission on the 16th to the 20th of next month. The Commission has heard an application for an order authorizing the Secretary of the Commission to issue a summons for Zuma to appear. Earlier, Zuma's lawyers requested that Zondo recuse himself, accusing him of what they call his continued biasness. But Zondo says there are compelling reasons for Zuma to testify. Ntebo Mokobo reports. After a number of requests for former President Jacob Zuma to appear before the State Capture Commission, its chairperson, Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo, was visibly frustrated after all his pleas seemed to have fallen on deaf ears. When you act and show courtesy and say, come and appear before the commission without issuing a summons, you are criticized. When you say, okay, let's issue a summons, then you are criticized. I mean, there are many people who have been requested by the commission to appear before the commission, and they've never had any hesitation. I mean, there was evidence that minister serving under Mr. Zuma or state security, Dr. Kwele, called one of them to a meeting at the airport where he told them that President Zuma had said that investigation should be stopped. How can I ignore all of those things? All I'm doing, I'm doing my job to establish exactly what happened. For his part, the commission's evidence leader, advocate Paul Pretorius, was unrelenting in his application. He explained why it is necessary for Zuma to appear before the commission, insisting that much of the corruption related to state capture occurred under him as president. This commission has issued over 2,500 summonses. Those are summonses which include summonses to appear and summonses to produce documents. 99 summonses have been issued for witnesses to appear. So, Chair, it's not an uncommon procedural mechanism. Um, And in fact, it's a necessary mechanism for this commission to do its work. 34 witnesses have implicated Mr. Zuma. Now, that obliges the commission to call Mr. Zuma to answer those allegations. All those uh, terms of reference obviously oblige you, Chair, to investigate matters related to the conduct directly of the former president. And after almost two hours listening to arguments from the Commission's legal team to have Zuma summoned, Justice Raymond Zondo was convinced this is the way to go. I'm satisfied that a proper case has been made out for an order authorizing that the Secretary of the Commission should sign and issue a summons against Mr. Jacob Kelechegisa Zuma, former President of the Republic of South Africa. Therefore, I'm going to make the following order. The... Secretary of the Commission is hereby authorized and directed to sign and issue a summons in terms of Section 3, Subsection 1, read with Subsection 2 
of the Commission's Act, age of 1947, requiring Mr. Jacob Gelegisazuma to appear before the Commission at 10 o'clock on the 16th to the 20th of November 2020. But the chair of the commission was considerate of Zuma's age and ruled that he can testify virtually if he wishes to do so. Should Mr. Jacob Gelechigisa Zuma make appropriate arrangements with the commission prior to the dates referred to above to give evidence via a video link and he subsequently gives evidence on those days via video link that will be deemed to be sufficient compliance with the summons and the sector of the commission should include advice or words to this effect in the summons so that Mr. Zuma will know that such appearance will be deemed to be sufficient compliance with the summons. Although former President Zuma's lawyers were not in attendance, they however filed an opposing affidavit to the application. I am Tebumukobo in Johannesburg. One to watch then on on that opposing uh, affidavit to the application. It's interesting to see what the response is likely to be. Okay, another big story before we go to our focus topic today. South Africa has apparently failed to build sufficient herd immunity to be protected from COVID-19 infections. Health experts say densely populated areas may have built up localized immunity, but that's not enough to protect everyone in the country. In the early stages of the pandemic, health experts said at least 60% of South African populations would need to contract the coronavirus to develop some immunity against it. However, so far, only around 700,000 people have tested positive for the coronavirus in South Africa. Tabile Mbele reports. Head immunity is when the majority of a population is immune to an infectious disease Health experts say over half of the South African population would have to get COVID-19 for the country to have a strong defense against the pandemic. Dr. Sandy Legupega, an internal medicine registrar at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, says we are nowhere close to having herd immunity in South Africa. The amount of positive figures that we currently have on the account of like 10% of the global population to get herd immunity is almost impossible at this stage. And to achieve this herd immunity and break the chain of transmission, we'll have about 60 to 70 percent of our individuals um, to be infected. In order for this to happen, it will have to take a lot of time for more people to get COVID-19. But it also comes with like catastrophic effects. This would be the fatalities that we've had. Kupega says once herd immunity is built, there would still be many unanswered questions about its effectiveness. I think we need to understand that the human immunity is actually quite complex and usually has multiple components to it. And what we do know and what we understand is that what you've encountered any virus, you should have an ability to develop immune response, and especially with the SARS-CoV-2. What we do not know is that how strong and how long it lasts once you've had it. Your body should recognize that you've had COVID before. And maybe if you uh, reinfected with COVID, it's more of a milder form. However, the Deputy Director of the HIV Clinical Research Unit at Vets Consortium, Dr. Francesca Condradi, says we've done fairly well to build immunity in some parts of the country, but that's still not enough to prevent new infections and reinfections. So the answer to that is we don't know. It's quite simple. I think that the infection is too new 
And it also does appear that we've had some cross-reactivity from other coronaviruses, and we don't know how long-lasting this is going to be. It appears that there's quite substantial herd immunity amongst younger people, so people under the age of, say, 40. Lots of them don't even know that they had it. Professor Alex van den Heeve, the chair of the School of Social Security at Wits University, says there's a lot of ambiguity on the official statistics to have an informed opinion about whether we've achieved localized herd immunity or not. So what we don't know is actually how many people were infected because the actual reported numbers are way out from what the excess deaths imply. This is what's completely unknown. And the question is really what's the memory in the immune system for these infections through time? And the the sort of scientific information that's being published is still unclear on this. So they can tell antibodies disappearing after, say, three to four months. But that doesn't mean that you've lost immunity. Fondenhefer says at this point, a vaccine is our only hope of getting some protection from COVID-19 infection. He also believes chances of a second wave are relatively low. And if we do get it, it will be relatively mild. Tabilempele, SABC News, Johannesburg. Join us for the Insider Essay this Tuesday evening at 7.30 and learn how Africa's best pizza is made in Hout Bay. Benvenuti to Massimos. Welcome to Massimos. Come on inside. Explore the heritage of the West Coast with freshly ground Zolani Mahola. And explore a remote getaway in Tulbach. Hi guys, it's Trevor Lagerwey. Catch me and my wife on the Insider Essay as we reconnect with nature after a long lockdown. That's the Insider Essay, Tuesday evenings at 7.30. Repeat Saturday nights at 8, only on SABC3. you hooked weekdays at 6 30 there'll be some awkward questions around the dinner table in eating with my ex why did it chill on sundays some motoring madness in season 26 of top gear sundays also sees our award-winning nature slot at 6 30 and when it comes to sport the bundesliga is exclusive to sabc3 so pop over to where the stage is yours Okay, it's Newsbreak Talk and we are just about to kickstart our conversation in a short while uh, with regard to mental health awareness and we're going to be uh, taking that um, conversation forward as we are joined by the KZN Mental Health Advocacy Group. Um, So we're just trying to link up there, but we will be doing that in a short while. In the meantime, I'm just going to go through some of your messages here on WhatsApp. Uh, Here's a voice note from Rani Pillay. Hi, Taresh and the Newsbreak team. How are you this afternoon? If 34 witnesses have come forward against the former president, Jacob Zuma, then the right thing for him to do now is to come before the committee to clear his name and to prove himself innocent. Rani of Stengamana, thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, yes, that was just us putting out there your opinions. Go ahead and send them through. But today's a very big day. It's very important um, to commemorate such a topic, such a conversation, uh, because I think the entire world needs to draw focus and alignment into this particular point. It's World Mental Health Day. The campaign today focuses on, I think a big push is going to be investment, but 
global health authority is calling for better investment, better infrastructure into this issue of mental health. And what you need to understand about it is, is that close to 1 billion people are living with a mental disorder and 3 million people die every year from harmful use of alcohol and and shockingly one person dies every 40 seconds by suicide now if that does not jar you and alarm you then i don't know what will and that is why it is so imperative to have this conversation so we're very fortunate to be joined on the line by um, one of the founding members of the kzn mental health advocacy group santosh pillay who's joining me on the line to talk about the annual walk and the significance of this day santosh great to have you on the program Hi, Tadesh. Thanks for having me on the show and uh, for Lotus M for always supporting the initiatives that we organize in KZN. Now, I have to say it's a surreal experience and I'll let you in on a secret at home. Uh, so we covered this walk and we do a lot of work with this particular group a lot. But we're always finding Santosh running around, organizing everything and being too busy to sit down and talk to us. So I think it's a total privilege, Santosh, that we were able to rope you in this year to give us your valuable feedback. You're absolutely right, Suresh, and I think uh, you've always been at our walk every year, and you know just how many people pitch up on the Durban Beach front, and you're right, I'm always running around and trying to get things done, so I've hardly ever had the chance to actually be on the show itself. But this year is so different because of the COVID-19 pandemic that although we still organize an online virtual event, which is happening the whole day, and people can participate anywhere, um, the pace is much different because I'm sitting at home enjoying a cup of tea and kind of engaging online in a virtual space around mental health rather than breaking out into a sweat on the North Beach Amphitheatre. Wonderful. But let's talk about that progression, Santosh, before we talk about the actual crux of today. Um, it's progressed over the years, hasn't it, the walk? And, and what sort of awareness are you effectively um, you know, successful in creating these days? You're right, it has progressed. And when we started the walk in 2016, um, we only had about, I think, less than 200 people that pitched up uh, on the BFR walk. And it, we held it in July, so it was winter, and it was a very cold morning. And we didn't imagine that in such a short space of time, the walk will take off in such an, uh, a phenomenal way. So we moved it to October, so now it coincides with World Mental Health Day. And last year, we had the biggest turnout ever. We had over 950 people. So I think what this shows is that there's an absolute need for mental health awareness and advocacy. And that if you give people the opportunity and the space to participate in a huge public event, people feel more confident and empowered to talk about their mental health conditions, to reach out for help, and to just uh, create a sense of community around this. Because often we talk about mental health and mental illness as if it's this very stigmatized um, uh, stuff and, and it lurks in the shadows. You know, but what we found is that, you know, if, like I said, if you create these spaces, people do pitch up. And even now, I mean, we're inundated with pictures and videos and social media postings. So, yeah, it's progressing. And, and we hope that next year in a post-COVID world, if that even happens, we can all meet again in person. You know, Santosh, I'll share with you. I mean, I uh, and everybody at home this 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 conversation I had at the walk last year. Uh, a group of people said to me that um, while they were walking along the promenade, um, they were literally physically being yanked out of the walk. They were pulled out of the walk, and they asked the, the group of people, "Why are you pulling me out of this walk?" And 
the response was, you're not mental. You don't have mental illness. You look like a normal person. There's nothing dysfunctional about you. There's nothing abnormal about your body. There's nothing abnormal about the way you walk, the way you speak. You are a normal human being. You should not be in this walk. And for me, that was a very strong indication of how so many communities still consider mental health to be only of that kind. So they don't understand that you could have a purely functioning person suffering from mental health. And I think that's something that you've been working very hard to change. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I remember you spoke to me about that incident last year, and I think it, it highlighted a couple of things. So the first thing is that people confuse mental health and mental illness. So I often, and my colleagues, we try to promote good mental health. And good mental health applies to every single human being on earth. All of us need good mental health in the same way we need good physical health. And so staying mentally healthy has nothing to do with mental illness. It's about doing all of the things that bring you joy and happiness and satisfaction in life and give you meaning. Mental illness is different. Mental illness is a condition that you might be suffering from that requires professional treatment. So, for example, if you have bipolar mood disorder or if you have clinical depression or if you have schizophrenia, those are mental illnesses. And in that case, you require professional help like a psychiatrist or a psychologist or an occupational therapist. So those are two related conversations, but they're slightly different. And so we're encouraging everybody to remember that your mental health is important. You don't have to have serious symptoms to boost mental health. So for me, sitting on my couch and reading a book improves my mental health. It doesn't mean that I've got to have a mental illness in order to read a book. And in the same way, our walk is about boosting mental health. It's about saying our mind and our body works together. So if you, if you neglect your body, you are neglecting your mind. And so a healthy body leads to a healthy mind. Mm, wonderfully explained. So there's much to talk about, and I do want to spend some time talking about COVID-19 and the impact it has had on our mental health. And I also want to talk about the global push then for... Um, more investment into mental health. But I'm happy to introduce now onto the line Chantal Boyson, who's done a lot of work in the sector as well. And, you know, one of the, the focus areas that I want to talk to Chantal about is youth and mental health, because that's been a major concern, hasn't it? Welcome, Chantal. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And hello to Santosh, my, my very um, endearing colleague. <laughs> yeah, so it's good to have you both on the line today. Uh, you know, and I want you to explain it to us because we've been hearing about this a lot and and maybe from a ground perspective, if you could tell us um, about the state of mental health of young people in SA. So it's, I think COVID-19 has, has certainly uh, this year highlighted some of the already glaring issues we've had with mental health in our country and specifically for young people. I think, you know, the depression rate for young people prior to COVID has been already exceptionally high, especially for young people in schools and universities um, as they struggle with sadness and hopelessness and, and a sense of depression. So during COVID especially, it's, it's been really stressful on young people with a lot of factors that plays into that. So certainly I would say when we look at the, the state of mental health of youth at the moment, I won't say that we are in a great space, unfortunately. Yeah, and that's, and that's worrying. But what are the contributing factors, though, that you know, make young people so vulnerable to mental health issues? Of course, 
the thing is um, that mental health is such a con- exists on such a continuum, and I think often people don't don't always grasp or understand what some of those impacts are. Um, but contributing factors could be anything from your parents becoming unemployed, uh, which puts financial strain on the family, which creates additional stress which you can pick up on as a young person. Um, during COVID, we have all experienced a lot of isolation. And I think for young people in particular, being isolated from friends and family and physical contact is, is exceptionally daunting. Um, and it, it does impact you greatly as you have to be um, isolated. There's also major disruptions in academic years. And this already puts a lot of pressure on young people as they are trying to progress to the next year and trying to progress through the year and having to write exams in different ways and having to learn different ways and, and not having accessibility to certain tools to, to help them learn. And we cannot forget that the impacts like gender-based violence and just physical safety also has a major contributing factor to mental health. What we know about young people is that they have a very high octane, um, easily influenced, constantly, um, you know, in pockets of groups and, 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 and in uh, certain sectors of society where there's always something going on. And a lot of what's going on ends up on social media or is, you know, surrounding them in conventional media. Um, Often we've you know, discussed the impact of violence in media, the impact it has on children, etc. But the impact of the media consumption and social media consumption that young people are exposed to, does that not also form some sort of breeding ground for mental illness in young people? Absolutely. And we cannot deny that. I think, you know, cyberbullying is one of the, one of the most, um, one of the elements and one of the contributing factors that is, that is increasing every year. And young people are really struggling, um, especially with that. So the role of media and social media has a major, major influence on, on young people, specifically uh, as they are so active on social media. It does. It is a double-edged sword, um, especially during a lockdown period where the only way to connect with somebody was through social media and through other types of media, which could in, in some senses be seen as a saving grace. And for a lot of people, that was a really great outlet to be able to connect with the outside world. But I absolutely agree, and you are right, um, there are, are many negative factors to, to social media and, and the way that we engage with it. Yeah. So we'll pick up on those points, Chantal, as we continue with our conversation. I'll bring in the uh, comments coming through on WhatsApp now. Um, just focusing on mental health at this point. And Michelle and Michaela from Phoenix has a very informative show to make our fellow South Africans aware of mental health. And uh, I've got a person saying, um, I know a 42-year-old who says to a 56-year-old neighbor that... Um, she has mental illness and that her mother must give her medication for this. Uh, I mean, of course, I think somebody like Santosh would be able to give us advice with regard to this, but I think I could tell you, first of all, you would need to get some sort of psychiatric uh, consult there if somebody 
you know, does claim to be suffering from a condition like that. That's that's the correct way to do it, Santosh, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's the best way to do it. I think I think many people should actually start with their GPs. Um, although we know that many GPs are often very uh, reluctant to then refer on to psychiatrists or psychologists, or they often don't even ask those kinds of questions. But in general, I think starting at a GP is a good space. Um, or if you have access directly uh, to a hospital that's near you, rather go to a hospital and ask for a consult directly. I often find that if people don't ask directly for a, a referral letter to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, they often don't get one. So I think it's also just important to kind of know that uh, you need to kind of speak up in some way and you need to know what your options are in terms of getting professional treatment. Yeah. Santosh, well, you know, as the statistics go in South Africa, as many as one in six South Africans suffer from anxiety, depression or substance uh, abuse problems. Um, and this is, of course, limiting issues like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. And so that just you know, underscores how serious the issue is. But I think globally and according to um, you know, global studies conducted and specifically those coming through from the World Health Organization, countries spend about, on average, only 2% of their health budgets on mental health. So if there's, you know, that disparity is glaring, we don't even need to, you know, discuss it. We can see it for ourselves. So where is the fight now to try and get governments and, and, and nations, and specifically in South Africa, to take the fight against mental illness more seriously by investing more, providing more resources? Where do you think that fight is? I think that fight is happening at multiple levels, and it has to happen at multiple levels. So if we take the kind of space that I work in, you know, although I work in a public health institution, a lot of the advocacy I do is very grassroots and community-based. And so on the one hand, we need to mobilize people on the ground, especially people who themselves have been affected by a mental health problem or themselves have a mental illness. And I think if we can mobilize people on the ground to hold government more accountable, that might be one way of doing it. And I think the best example we've got in South Africa is the treatment action campaign uh, in the 90s around getting access to ARVs and really turning South Africa into a really good case study around how community activism can result in better treatment outcomes. Because now we run the biggest free ARV program in the world. And that's really directly because of the activism around people affected by HIV and infected with HIV. And so I think we've got to mobilize people. But that's quite difficult because we know that governments are often quite tone deaf to even activist voices. And so we also then have to mobilize at a policy level. And I think we need to kind of be very clued up around how much governments are spending on mental health and where that money is going to. And so I think it's quite difficult, but I think people need to become a bit more active in terms of holding local and national governments accountable. Um, For example, we've got the National Mental Health Policy Framework and Strategic Plan, which was developed in 2013. And that came about through a consultation process across South Africa. And it was a really, really great plan. You know, um, it's an impressive document if you read it. And that plan was dated 2013 to 2020. And hey, guess what? We are already in 2020. And if you read that plan now, we've accomplished very, very little. The National Mental Health Policy Framework has really just collected dust. Uh, Very few people have 
um, shown any leadership around implementing it in any of the provinces. Um, and there's even research showing that even when they did the consultation process across the country, very little inputs were taken from people on the ground. Yeah, and so, I think what it, what it then spirals down to and means and reflects on the ground is the fact that there remains a lack of access, a lack of availability of mental health uh, support, which then means that people continue to suffer with the condition without adequate um, you know, address, or those who have it and are feeling stigmatized and unsure and uncertain uh, on what to do with it, uh, feel that they must suffer in silence because they aren't visible spaces and affordable spaces for them to go to. Yeah, you're right, Tarish. And I mean, if I can just use a, a last very relevant local example, is for the last three years, Addington Hospital on the beachfront has not had a psychologist at all. And that's for the very first time in, I think, post-1994 history that such a major hospital in Durban has not had a psychologist. And I've not seen any activism at all around that. Um, And even people who are suffering because they don't have access to a psychologist haven't made any considerable uh, noise around this issue. And yet when Addington Hospital's oncology unit closed down, it was making front page news almost every week. And so we can already see the discrepancies in how we treat some illnesses like cancer, which is obviously extremely serious and, and requires attention, but far more seriously than other conditions like mental illnesses. Why is it that for three years, Addington Hospital has been allowed to function without a psychologist? And what's happening to all those people that need psychological support? Mm, that's, a, that's a gripping point uh, that, that you raised there, Santosh. And... Let's 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 bring Chantal in on this particular point, uh, because Chantal, ultimately, we find that if this is the state and this is the case of um, infrastructural support for mental health in uh, in the country, um, where do parents take their children to? Which then means that again, there's an exacerbation of uh, mental health illness among the youth. Hi, Chantal. Okay, maybe we've just lost our connection there. We're going to try and establish it. We'll be back after this. Family means being there for the ones you love. Giving them your time, your love, and of course, food. At Spa, we make that easier. We have all the services you need to pay bills or send and receive money. But more than that, we have all your essentials and the products you really love at low prices every day. So you don't have to spend time running from one place to the next. You can get it all done for less at Spa. Spa, we're here for you so you can be there for your family. Often referred to as an enigma, the true diva of Bollywood. On Rekha's 66th birthday, the Bollywood billboard has something special for all her fans. Join me, Varshan Sukhan, for another golden edition of the show featuring Rekha's all-time hits from Umrao Jan, Mukaddar Ka Sikandar, Khun Bari Mang and much more. That's on this Saturday, 1 to 3 p.m.
World Mental Health Day today. We're throwing our focus onto this and talking about some critical issues around the topic. And just uh, taking a break from the um, KZN Mental Health Advocacy Group because I want to bring on to the show now a, a very interesting study that I came across. And this was conducted uh, by Dr. Tejani Naidu, a psychiatry registrar based at a public hospital uh, in Durban. And um, I think her study found a high prevalence of burnout, anxiety and depression among medical doctors in KZN. Um, and I think this also came at a significant time when everybody was just, you know, really talking about the state of public health care. So, Dr. Tejani Naidu, thank you so much for your time today on the program. Thank you for having me. Hi, Dr. Naidu. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you so much for making the time for us today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about, you know, your study firstly. I mean, help us identify what were you looking to investigate? So um, internationally, studies have been done uh, investigating the prevalence of burnout um, and depression in doctors, and it has been found that it is quite high. Um, There have been a few studies done in South Africa, but none in KZN. So I thought that it was a really important topic to um, have a look at, um, and our study did uncover that burnout, anxiety, and depression were quite prevalent, with over half of uh, medical doctors having burnout and one-fifth of doctors uh, having anxiety and depressive symptoms. Was this done within the context of COVID-19? No. So this study was done pre-COVID. Data collection was from September 2018 until January 2019. What is it then saying about, um, I think, two things then, the state of public health care and the burden that doctors then carry? Yes. So... Basically, um, our study found that um, the main issues that individuals uh, identified as as impacting poorly on their mental health was that there were severe staff shortages, uh, poor working conditions, high workload, a lack of equipment, long working hours, and public system-related frustration. Um, So in terms of um, the approach that we recommended in our study was that both individual and organizational strategies need to be implemented. So at an individual level, um, some evidence-based strategies include mindfulness, stress management, communication skills training, exercise program programs, and other self-care efforts. Whilst at an organizational level, we did mention that reducing work hours and workload, improving institutional support and advocacy for peer support with focus on junior doctors is really important. And then I think overall, it would be remiss not to mention that um, mental health itself should be destigmatized um, at a larger level. So clinical departments, um, hospitals, um, agencies like the HPCSA and Department of Health should create more awareness surrounding mental illness, particularly in medical doctors. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, and I think if, if if such continues, you know, where you have this level of um, one fifth of the groups being positive for anxiety and depressive symptoms based on the workload, um, ultimately, and I mean, I, I don't even need to ask this, but if you could just help us have a clinical understanding into it, what does it mean for the kind of rollout of medical services that is going to be, um, you know, given to the South African public? 
Yeah, so um, burnout, anxiety and depression have negative consequences for medical doctors in terms of both their personal and professional lives. So it affects the relationships with other people, it affects the way that they view themselves and ultimately affects patient care. So you're absolutely correct, it does affect, um, you know, in terms of uh, the quality of patient care offered, it definitely does affect that as well. And I think finally then, uh, what I want to say to you is something we've been discussing here on the program thus far. Uh, and globally, we find that countries spend on average only 2% of their health budgets on mental health. Uh, we were talking to clinical psychologist here, Santosh Pele, who tells us that uh, for a great deal of time, Addington Hospital, for example, has not had a psychologist at, at, the, um, at the precinct to provide uh, support on a uh, um, psychology basis there for patients. Um, you've made recommendations here to the, you know, in your study for how to better manage this workload for better mental health. How convinced are you that it's going to be taken seriously, taking into account the climate and the infrastructure already existing that doesn't place so much of emphasis on mental health care in public health systems? Mm. So I think that... um with the advent of COVID-19, um, the mental health uh, in medical doctors and healthcare workers at large has actually, uh, according to the Department of Health, taken, been taken a bit more seriously because they have been, um, the mental health team I know in KwaZulu-Natal has been uh, doing sort of psychological first aid um, at different institutions and that. So at least that is a positive thing that's happening. But insofar as implementation of both individual and larger organizational strategies, um, I'm hoping that our study, uh, based on the recommendations, um, that something positive does come off it. And, and we are hoping that it, if at least it helps a few individuals, that that would be quite um, helpful. But obviously we'd, we'd want to change to occur at a more um, a higher level, at an organizational level. So we are positive that hopefully something good does come off the study. Hmm, wonderful. And that was Dr. Tejani Naidu, a psychiatry registrar based at a public hospital, talking to us about her study. Thank you so much for making the time for us. Thank you so much. So there you go. Another indication as to the impact of, um, of um, mental health and mental illness in the public health care sector. Santosh, follows on from the point you raised about Arlington, doesn't it? What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think um, she raises absolutely important uh, issues. And I think, you know, we, we have to have those conversations on multiple perspectives, you know, because, you know, mental health is such a kind of huge animal. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's so many different angles that we need to take. And, and I'm glad that you raised the issue around healthcare workers as well, because, you know, especially during COVID-19, the mental health of healthcare workers has really suffered. Hmm. Shocking to say the least. So uh, we are... Uh, going to go to some of our WhatsApp messages now. Text here from Roshni in Pitamarisberg. Thanks for updating us and sharing your knowledge with us. Greatly appreciated. Um, thank you so much for saying so, Roshni. I hope that you can take some of this information and then you know hand it over to um, those near and dear to you. We've got Chantal back on the line now. Chantal Boyson, of course, is talking to us about a lot of uh, youth issues because I feel often this is something neglected and then when it comes to um, cases of teenage suicide or cases of um, uh, you know reckless teenage behavior, that's when we want to then question what is going wrong with young people. So I think it was important to, to bring that aspect into the conversation here as well. And and you know, what what are your thoughts, Chantal, with regard to um, earlier before you left? I said, if there's such a lack of access to mental health care, um, 
you know, the impact or the, 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 the situation it places the parent in because ultimately they don't know where to turn, whether from an information perspective or from a direct um, medical assistance perspective. So, you know, what should parents be doing um, when faced in a situation like this? Thank you for having me back. Apologies for the cut. Um, so I think this is a very pertinent question. And like Santosh has addressed earlier, that we have these major structural issues. The reality is that, um, you know, just like one would, the, let's say, for instance, somebody with get, in your family gets cancer, you become aware of cancer because of your family member um, being affected by it. And you start doing research about it. You start to try and understand what it is, where to go to, who to get information from, and how can you help your family member. I think that that should be your similar approach when it comes to mental health and mental well-being, both for the young person but also for parents. Parents are under an immense amount of stress, especially now during very... Um, tough economic times, but I think, you know, the, the best um, the best answer I can give you is to say to arm yourself with information and to to get the information from the right source. Um, there is such a mental health and the way that we address mental health is so broad and people need different interventions at different times of their lives. And it's an incredibly complex um, issue to deal with. Uh, but I think if you, if you know where to find the right information from and how to, um, you know, how to build your case from there, that will already, already arm you with a lot of um, armor to be able to look after yourself and your family. Yeah. Conversely, though, Chantal, is there, do young people face this issue where nobody takes them seriously? You know, it's often quick to dismiss a child and say, oh, you're just being a brat, you're just being stubborn, um, you know, pull yourself together, you're not really supposed to have any issues, you're too young to be having issues. Um, is, is, is that culture also uh, present in a lot of homes, cultures? Absolutely. I think, you know, like the whole idea of adolescent mental health has long been a difficult concept for even medical professionals and researchers to address around the world. So, it's, and it's especially due to the de developmental phase of this period in a young person's life and the physical elements like hormones playing a, a major role. So it is certainly valid to say that a lot of um, parents and family members might dismiss young people as having as just being a teenager or you know having some issues that's related to that. But there are very clear um, symptoms that parents can look out for, and maybe I can mention some of those um, because those those would at least give you a segue into understanding that something is wrong with your child. And I think the the idea is really to be to be in tune with what your child's behaviour is like, and things like uh, sleep or appetite changes. Um, mood changes, withdrawing from social engagement, uh, dropping in functioning in school, in sports, um, problems thinking and concentration, increased sensitivity, apathy, and feeling disconnected, uh, nervousness, and unusual behaviour. And I think, I think because we're all so busy and we're all trying to just keep everything together, 
it's often often too easy not to to take note of things that is unusual. And I think the key word here is unusual behavior to distinguish whether it is something that's related to their mental health or something that is just, like you say, a teen acting up. Yeah. Zantosh, and of course, I'll remind you, we're speaking to the KZN Mental Health Advocacy Group. Zantosh is a co-founder and a clinical psychologist joining us today on the occasion of their work. We can wrap up and talk about the work just now in terms of the success and the efficacy it's had. But Santosh, I have to bring in this point, and I think it's been, um, you know, much a discussion, much a literature for a lot of, a lot of organizations, a lot of people, COVID-19 and mental health uh it's you know many have been saying to me on the street i've never had an issue about feeling sad depressed or anxious but suddenly in COVID 19 i do so this is the nature of that bug um and needless to say it's had an impact and i'm not going to ask you what impact it's had we've spent numerous shows talking about it my question is what is it doing for um the new normal like you said, whatever that is. Because a lot of people have been, a lot of um, mental health experts have predicted an absolute spike in chronic mental illness once or if COVID-19 even subsides. Your calculations with regard to this? Yeah, thanks, Talish. Um I think you've raised important issues. And I know you have spoken about mental health and COVID in your show before as well. So that's great. I think most of us don't really have a clear crystal ball about what's going to happen. But I think there might be some pros and some cons to this. So on the one hand, I think COVID-19 has allowed us to talk about mental health much more often. So I think that's been one of the advantages is that because literally the world has changed and it has affected every country on earth, there's no denying that there are mental health implications. So I think in that regard, there's been a, a stronger conversation around mental health because in some ways it's affecting everybody. But on the other hand, I think we're also going to maybe perhaps see the loss of funding and maybe even infrastructure that's going to go towards uh, COVID-related stuff and is going to maybe be taken away from things like mental health because we know that often mental health falls at the bottom end of the ladder when it comes to funding. So, you know, I think my my wish is that we use this opportunity of COVID-19 to integrate mental health into all forms of healthcare. And we use this opportunity to realize that as much as there's been this pandemic around a virus, that has also been this related emotional epidemic that's been following everyone through as well. And I think this is a perfect opportunity for people to start having these conversations. Because like you said, there's no denying that there's been mental health implications. To deal with it, though, Santosh, and I know you've been, you deal with this on a daily basis in terms of you know, the, the, the cases you deal with and, 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 and uh, the patients you see. Um, and I don't think we could ever have enough of, of tips and enough of, um, you know, guidelines and um, guidelines and guidance with regard to how to handle, um, you know, mental health or mental illness. To, to many listening right now, who've possibly just been feeling, you know, 2020 has just been a bad year, right? But possibly just labeling it as that because they're not really identifying with their symptoms, not identifying with what, you know, um, predefined examples of mental illness is. What would you say to them to, um, you know, cope with what they're going through? Sure. 
Um, I think there's a couple of practical things people can do. You know, so the, uh, I'll name maybe just three things so that there's some advice people are left with. I think the first thing, and this relates to our walk, is to take care of your body. Uh, we know there's been a huge increase in weight gain during COVID-19 because people are being uh, less kind of mobile, they're going out less, they're eating more at home, etc. Uh, people are working from home. So I think the first thing is to take care of your body because, you know, a healthy body leads to a healthy mind. And so exercise, we know, uh, boosts endorphins uh, in your brain and makes you feel better. So I think exercise is an absolutely practical way of taking care of your mental health. I think the second thing is not to ignore the symptoms of the stress. Everybody knows themselves better than anybody else. And if you know that something's not going right in your life, then it's an opportunity to sit and reflect on what might be some of those causes. So we don't want to medicalize people's emotions too much. So we, we don't want to say that the first thing you should do is go and see a psychologist or a psychiatrist because I get lots of messages from people saying they need to see a psychologist. And most often I tell people you don't need to see someone. That actually if you just spend some time thinking about where some of the root causes of these feelings are coming from, you can make changes on your own. Uh, and often it's this kind of day-to-day distress that's causing people to, to feel unwell. And I think the last thing people can do is to connect with other people. We know that one of the number one um, causes of mental illness and one of the things that exacerbates it is social disconnection. And I think during this era of physical distancing, don't confuse physical distancing with emotional distancing. Just because you can't see people that you normally would interact with doesn't mean that you can't speak to them on the phone, on WhatsApp, have a Zoom call with them, etc. So it's very, very important to connect with other people. And if people can do those three things, um, I think they at least in some way will boost their resilience. Yeah, definitely. Sintosh, how's about, how's about this one? Uh, going back to our WhatsApp line now, we've got Eric Chetty here. Um, and he says, I'm an ex-APS member. I lodged a case to the Department of Labor in the year 2000 regarding post-traumatic stress disorder and depression as a result of my experiences in uh, the police. I did this via an attorney who specializes in these cases. Um, yeah, so... I just want to talk to you about uh, that kind of issue where you have, you know, people like an, an ex-SAPS member suffering from a, a PTSD and depression. Um, yeah, and, 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 you know, a lot of them, when they want to get attention and take the legal route and try and get assistance, that in itself has an impact on, on many like this, because that's what Eric is telling us. He's had a major uh, exacerbation of his condition due to the fact that he's actually taken um, the issue to court. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like quite a stressful situation to be in. And I think that might be a case of where it's uh, more mental illness related or mental disorder rather than purely boosting mental health, you know, because post-traumatic stress disorder is quite a serious condition. Um, and it often does require some professional help. I mean, I think he's doing what he, he can do. Um, I mean, he can always contact me if he wants to get some advice offline. 
Great. So we're about to wrap up and I'll go to some WhatsApp messages quickly and then we'll um, wrap up our, our conversation. Chapter 2 says, COVID has exposed most South Africans to extremely high levels of anxiety, fear and uncertainty, which then impacts negatively on the mental health conditions. Almost 2,000 su- suicides in a space of eight months is a sad reality. It's difficult to continuously maintain and keep a positive mental attitude when faced with a dilemma of a high magnitude not familiar to humans such as a worldwide pandemic that kills them. Definitely the challenge chapter 2. I see exactly what you're saying. Shamila Maharaj from Stanger says, we appreciate you giving us this accurate news we receive. Uh, thanks, Shamila, for listening. And uh, quick question, Chantal, let's start with you on this one. Is there a mental illness grant? I do believe that would fall under disability, right? Uh, that's correct, yes. I mean, that's a com- complicated question, but yes. Yeah. So I think the final question for you then, Chantal, would be what is the risk of having a youth with a high rate of compromised mental health? And what does it mean for the future functioning of society? Thank you for the question. I think, you know, a compromised, it, it really does mean a compromised future. And, you know, they, they, mental health problems are predicted to be the main cause of global mortality and mobility by 2030. And that is statisticians that, that put that together. So it means that it, it really does impact us in a social, economic and environmental way. It puts pressure on health care systems. Um, it, it really, uh, there's a lack of economic progress. It, does, it impacts on discriminatory practices and human rights violations. So there are an immense amount of um, implications if we don't look after our mental health. And I really also wanted to emphasize that, you know, you are, as a human being, you're able to take care of your own mental well-being. And I think that's some of the trends that I've been involved in and seen is that young people specifically want to take charge of their own health. They want to know how to take charge of their own health. And there is so many different approaches. They've noted up to a hundred different approaches that have been suggested to address things like anxiety and depression. But the majority haven't been properly researched. So there is so much scope for us to to look at what are some of the available resources in ways we've never even looked at mental health before. So from that aspect, I think that even though the future looks dire, there's also a lot of opportunity for us to take mental health and well-being into our own hands, look after ourselves, yeah, and yeah. to help both community mental well-being. Definitely. Well, Santosh, co-founder of the KZN um, Mental Health Advocacy Group, as you wrap up now, today is a very significant day for the walk. And, you know, your, your goal then for this walk in KZN to actually achieve the many goals that you've identified and highlighted here today. Yeah, thanks, Tadesh. I think if we can just have participation by people uh, all over KZN and, in fact, across the country, that would be fantastic. And we'll kind of take stock of uh, what kinds of conversations people have been having online. And already we've had people from across the country and in the world, in fact, participate in our walk. So even though we had to go online this year, in some ways it's had some advantages in that we've managed to go global. So everybody listening, still early in the day, please move for mental health post a picture or video and use the hashtag step up KZN and hashtag speak your mind and we'll be able to follow that 
on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter and other social media. Thanks, Taresh. Santosh, we thank you for your time and wish you guys all the best with the walk. Remember, you can send your pictures there, step up KZN, and you can do your walk to show that you're moving to raise awareness about mental health. Well, uh, Chantal Boyson and Santosh Pali, thank you very much for your time today. We really enjoyed the valuable information you left us with. Thank you, Taresh. Appreciate it. Thank you, Taresh. Thanks, Chantal. <laughs> Thanks, Santos. Cool, guys. Enjoy the walk. What's left of it? And yeah, go ahead. Hashtag step up KZN. Put out your pictures of your walk with your family, your your little stroll there. Get in the conversation going. And I think ultimately everybody just needs to be a bit uh, healthier up there in the mind to ensure that everything else works smoothly. So we leave the conversation there from me, Tarish, and this broadcast came your way courtesy of the team. Executive producer Salma Patel and Rachel Vadi. From me, Tarish, hey, have an awesome day. News break. Lotus FM, powered by SABC News.